This is an ABC podcast. The dog ate my homework. It's the classic excuse for not handing in your Year 5 assignment on the Great Barrier Reef or the discovery of gold in Australia. Well, what if your assignment was to see inflation coming and you didn't do it? You'd need a pretty big dog. Hello, this is The Money. I'm Richard Aidey. You'll hear about the dog that ate the homework of the central bankers. Yep, it's them, later in the show. I'm sure you're familiar with the shorthand ways of dividing the adult population by age. There's the war generation, the baby boomers, Generation X, probably the best one, millennials and Gen Z. Well, economist Alison Pennington is particularly interested in the youngest two groups broadly, the under 35s. They face a smorgasbord of problems. Low pay, insecure work, high rentals, big hex debts, dizzying property prices. The rough end of the pineapple, in other words. And Alison believes that she knows why. The embrace of neoliberalism from the 1980s on by a succession of governments. It was devised over time, but it really got its authority in the 70s and 80s inflation crisis. And one of its key tenets of, of its theoretical base is that we can control inflation by controlling the supply of money. And it was really because we came into that stagflation crisis that neoliberalism got its ascendancy. But generally what it, what it argues is that governments really need to get out of the way of, of the most efficient form of economic organisation. And the best way to coordinate an economy, production and exchange, is through markets. And therefore, governments shouldn't have trade barriers. They shouldn't be. They shouldn't try to frame and harness capital investment in any public interest, which is the way that we had been doing things since post-war period. There should be no collective power exerted over the efficient, effective operation of a market. So unions are bad for the economy <laughs> generally because they they stop people operating as individuals. And it politically got a lot of salience because we were witnessing the continued decline of the the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. Stalinism and individualism, the idea that it was individual effort and there are no governments, there is no society, there's just individuals and families, which I think was what Thatcher said. Yes, Thatcher and Reagan, who are both, whatever else you might think of them, gifted politicians and gifted political communicators, really kind of turbocharged this, didn't they? Oh, incredibly. They framed the politics of neoliberalism. They were able to really harness the mood of individual freedom, really, and connect that to an economic model. And I think that's what we've inherited now is decades of this. And, mm. and it's had huge implications But why has it particularly impacted younger Australians, especially when it comes to work? Well, since unions were anti-competitive and individuals had to operate in the market alone, wages increasingly became the site of competition between businesses. And so if wages are then in the firing line of competition, it means that the quality of, of work can decline, coupled with perspective that government shouldn't be providing jobs and that's where you see it coupled with austerity. You have then overall a situation where you have worse jobs, less entry-level opportunities and at the same time 
one of the big industry developments with neoliberalism is that we lost manufacturing, we stopped producing, and we offshored a lot of those jobs. And corresponding on the other side of that, we have explosion of new services industries like hospitality and retail and, and healthcare and education. And that explosion of new industries alongside the loss of that full-time standard good jobs associated with manufacturing, young people essentially become the fodder for, for those new industries. They essentially then go into an entirely new world of work that is unrecognisable from that of their parents. Mm. They are in worse quality jobs, jobs that are less likely to be able to build a life out of. They are jumping between multiple short-term experiences and then they're at the the forefront of the decline of worker power. So that's where you see the explosion in wage theft and there's a a startling statistic that half of all 21 to 24-year-olds report earnings below minimum wage. I can remember doing bad jobs myself. But, of course, that was when I was a teenager and when I was at uni, and it wasn't when I started going into what I thought of as my career. And the difference is that these conditions, this lack of security, this uh, lack of prospect, continues for young people much longer now. Absolutely. If you look at the statistics on the percentage of people with bachelor degrees or higher that are pulled in sectors that don't require their, their qualifications, it is continually growing every year uh, since the GFC actually is a really key moment where things go south for young people. And the other thing to keep in mind with the generational experience is we've had an explosion in university education. This is the highest educated generation in Australia's history. Mm. But the promise of a secure and meaningful job they have never eventuated for a lot of young people. The other key thing that's really different for young people compared to older gens is the compounding effect of the decline of public services. We turned so many things into markets that were originally public services for our parents, such that being able to access a GP that bulk bills, it's incredibly difficult. And what the combined effect of losing all of those supports, those extra work supports, those things outside of the experience of employment that lift you up, means that your dependence on whatever income you can earn on the job increases. So you have a higher uh, risk of exploitation and you're more likely to take whatever you can get because there is no other option. Alison, there's a lot of ideas, so I'm going to keep moving. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah, just shut me up when you need me to. (laughs) You've got a stat from the 2021 Australian Youth Barometer survey conducted by Monash. It's pretty devastating, actually, and it's 53% of young Australians expect to be financially worse off than their parents. Now, that, of course, is partly about jobs, which we've just been talking about. But it's also, and I think very particularly, about the property market, isn't it? Oh, it, housing is central to security and wealth development in Australia. It has been since the, the colony began. It is a sorry situation where we have billions of dollars that are going out the door to pump up housing prices and are I guess, prioritising those who are having wealth uh, and housing assets already over those who need to access housing now and in the future. Up until the 70s, government played a stronger role in making sure people had access to housing. Mm. That was construction, but also concessional loans. And then from the 80s, things dramatically changed. Government steps back. We start inflating prices through the use of 
capital gains tax exemptions, negative gearing. And the combined effect of that is to pump up prices while government has stepped away from ensuring there's sufficient supply. And the combined effect of that is for young people, they were much more likely to own homes in the 80s than they are today. Over 60% of 25 to 34-year-olds owned a home in the 80s, and now it's less than 45%. And if you if you break that down for the poorest, 20% of young people, 25 to 34, it's disastrous. They've fallen over 40 percentage points in their home ownership rates to under 23% mm. now, which is actually the worst fall than anywhere in the OECD. You've got a chapter in the book titled The Wrong Tools, that younger Australians don't have the correct mechanisms to make real change. Now, there's a few reasons for this, but I'm very interested in your analysis of how class feeds into it, of how even thinking about class feeds into this. One of the very spectacular weapons of the neoliberal period has been the rise of internet technologies, because alongside that has been basically the apparatus to convince people, particularly young people, that they can construct themselves as individuals and they can create their futures um, through this form of individual expression. And that was a concerted effort coming out of the post-war period to dismantle collective identities and dismantle the idea that you ever needed to relate to each other on an economic basis. I think young people are realising more and more those forms of individual expression and opinions and individual construction of self actually is no match for the economic weapon and power that is, you know, insecure work or the investor-dominated housing market. And what it does is that that more atomised individualistic view of the world means that a failure to achieve a good job or a decent home, they're personal failings rather than anything wider and more systematic. It is heartbreaking. I see this time and again talking with young people, how much of this they are carrying on their shoulders. And we see that in the explosion in mental health issues and anxiety and depression among young people. I was raised in a, a scrappy, you know, poorer background, but I was also taught that that was unfair and wrong and that there were things that we could do by working together to make it better. Well, let's talk about them. But before we do, I should say that this is The Money with me, Richard Aidey, and you're hearing from Alison Pennington, author of Generation f Alison, you lay out the huge problems that young people are facing and bell the cat that it's the fault of neoliberalism. But what can young people do to start making their lives better? So I think that the level of atomization and isolation is so profound for young people. I start from the building blocks of effective political action, and that is create human bonds and social connectedness in your life. And from that, we build trust. And if we're going to push back on this idea that everyone's out for themselves and we can't do things for each other or step up for someone we don't even know, Uh, then it's going to be difficult to build effective political movements. So I start from that first layer of building up human social bonds and then I move into, you know, what are the apparatuses we have on hand to be effective? And it's pretty difficult to go past unions because they are the largest volunteer organisations in Australia. They are at a historic level lows of of unionisation rates of, of membership. But it still remains the fact that people have to work to earn an income to survive. They are still gathering in these places, workplaces, alongside others and do have common interests. There are huge barriers to unionisation, which is in part the challenge here. But I think for young people, they look at the history of a recently corporatist union movement and they say, 
I don't need or want another authority to tell me how it is that I'm going to improve my life. Especially if I, I have to pay for the privilege. Exactly. And I think this is the challenge for the union movement is to essentially provide a space for, for young people to combine their multiple layering issues. It's not just about a decent job and not being exploited on the job. But some of the key issues young people are really, really care about is housing and affordable housing and the climate crisis. And so we're kind of moving into this period where unions, they need to become broader spaces for young people to manifest everything they dream and want for a better life. And that is also a lot about having somewhere they can come together to connect, to meaningfully implement a new campaign to shape that campaign because they don't have those collective spaces in their life and I think they're crying out for them. Yeah. One big challenge is that when unions were stronger and more present in Australian life, we had more manufacturing, we had more places where people were physically gathered together. We're now more services. We, Since the pandemic, a lot of people working from home, not together. So that, that's a challenge. But you mentioned housing. What else, apart from getting unions going again, could we do to address the housing crisis? Uh Specifically on housing, good quality, higher density, but good public housing, social housing, is a meaningful way to fix the, the, the crisis that they currently face in the rental market. And what, what will it take to get there? It's going to take government providing a massive national construction campaign. Um, and this is an all levels of government situation, right? This can't... this. Historically, it's never been very well led just by the Commonwealth. It's actually been states that have, I'm thinking of the post-war period, were most successful. But we know we've got local government that has to be absolutely keyed in with that. Yes, it's a, a reinvestment in what we would think of as social housing and community housing. You talked briefly about unions, and I guess that goes to, to work too. If you've got a rejuvenated union movement, you are likely to get better conditions in your work. I think that there is a, a quality question, which is where unions come in. They, they help to make jobs better. They help to make bad jobs better. But there's a quantity problem here because one of the, the big weapons of, of the neoliberal period has been to say government shouldn't play a role in providing jobs or it should step back from the public provision of jobs. And... That's, that's really a, a key factor is when we look at the future of responding to this labour market problems we have, it might be tight on, on paper, but actually there's a lot of quality problems. They aren't going to be solved unless government reasserts its position as, as a provider of quality employment. And this is something we've done before. Actually, it's a point you make in the book. After the war, there was a, an investment in the public sector that provided a lot of jobs and was, in fact, a great driver of social mobility, that, those public sector jobs. We can't talk about everything, but I do want to touch on tax reform. What are your thoughts about what we should be thinking of? I think we need a big, brave discussion in Australia about our tax system. I think that one of the glaring insights into the collapse of the fair go is that an average dollar earned from work is now more than 10 times likely to be taxed than a dollar in capital gains. And so for an, a nation that defined itself based on hard work, uh, it is absurd <laughs> that people who aren't lifting a finger are um, able to accumulate 
gains in such a way. It's it's antithetical to actually the, the whole notion of the fair go. The other thing we need to do in Australia is treat wealth the same as we treat income. I think Australians have a a pretty strong sense that, you know, a lawyer should be paying more tax proportionally to a, a cleaner. We understand progressivity in taxation of income, but we don't treat wealth in the same way. And that is a particularly difficult uh, political challenge. I think the volume of untaxed capital, capital gains outside of the system, is so profound. Um, there are there's growing calls across the world for a progressive wealth tax. You have um, famous economist Piketty has a proposal of a one percent on individual net wealth between one to five million euros, or two percent if you have over five million. Uh, there's wealth tax proposals in the US, 20% on tax, tax on households with fortunes over 100 million. And Australia, even we've had a long history of estate and inheritance taxes. And I think given that we are looking at, in the case of the housing systems work, the creation of this semi-feudal class relation mm-hmm. where what you're born into now determines your life chances, their only way, the only antidote to that kind of uh, rot is to create an estate or inheritance tax base. It's an important point that when we say young people face real difficulty in owning a home ever, that's not all young people. Some mm. young people will be able to do it because of their, the family they've been born into. Now, mm. I want to finish, Alison, by asking you something a bit different, I suppose, because you do outline the, the political challenges of some of these changes. But I think the tone of the book is optimistic you really believe that we can change, change from where we've been going for more than 30 years? I do. I think that we are fighting for the soul of our nation at this point and we are at an egalitarian cliff edge, really. Everything that, that we were and we made that was good about Australia is hanging by a thread And so I am optimistic because for young people, they have the least skin in the game with the status quo, the the way things are set at the moment. And for the most part, these are smart, very empathetic people who who want to make change. What I explain in the book is that the the tools for making that change have been made very difficult for them to grasp because they've been on the arse end of of this neoliberal system. But I, I am emboldened by history Uh, People don't go backwards without a fight. And I believe that Australia's youth can lead a a resurgence of democratic participation in all aspects of our lives. Good place to wrap this up, I think. Alison Pennington, thank you very much for joining us this week on The Money. Thank you. Alison Pennington is the author of Generation F, How Young Australians Can Reclaim Their Uncertain Futures. It's a crikey read. Now we get to the dog eating the homework. The IMF, the International Monetary Fund, has been looking at why central banks around the world, not just Australia, didn't see inflation coming, which is a fairly important thing to not see. Gareth Hutchins is a business and economics reporter for the ABC. He pointed this out the other day. Gareth, where did you spot this? Yeah, this comes from a a magazine produced by the International Monetary Fund. It comes out four times a year. And this is the most recent one, uh, the March quarter. And the entire 
thing is dedicated to inflation and monetary policy. Right. Okay. Well, I'm glad you drew the straw on that one. Uh, but And I know it doesn't feel like it, but our inflation in Australia is turns out relatively modest. Poland's rates double ours and Argentina's is truly appalling. Uh, look, if you want to feel better about the inflation in Australia, you can look overseas at those countries you've mentioned and others. Um, inflation here, headline inflation is nearly 8%. Underlying inflation is a touch below 7%. So it's bad uh, relatively for Australia for the last 30 years, but compared to other countries, it's, we're, we're doing very well. So the IMF has, has come up with four reasons as to why the central banks who are full of clever people who are trying to work out what's going to happen with their economies didn't see this inflation coming. What, what, would it, what is the first one? The first one is that when the pandemic shock first hit in 2020, governments provided massive fiscal stimulus to keep their economies afloat. Now, that helped economies recover much faster than expected which meant official predictions of the dire output slumps didn't eventuate. So these IMF researchers say that they, they found evidence that countries where the economic recovery was much faster than expected, they also experienced higher than expected inflation. Right. So this is, this is governments, of course, mainly going, OK, we'll get this much money into the economy quickly to try and spare us complete disaster. Which they had to do. They had to do. I mean, if you, if you think back to 2020, um, we had those images coming out from China where people did not know what this thing was. It was very scary. It was an insurance policy, essentially. They sprayed their economies with stimulus, and it's better to spray with more than with less, I think. All right. So too, too much stimulus is the very shorthand version of that. What about supply chains, Gareth? Because this is something I think that we've all had to become much more aware of since the pandemic. Have they had a role? Oh, they've had a huge role because so you had this faster than expected recovery because of all the stimulus that was pumped into economies. But that stimulus crashed headlong into highly constrained supply chains because a lot of supply chains around the world shut down temporarily. And so the supply dropped off and it created this real bottleneck that was caused by both an increase in demand and a fall off in supply. And it's very rare to have a combination of those two. And as I understand it, wasn't just that increase in demand, fall off in supply, but it was it was the nature of the imbalance for this particular time as well. Yeah, it's uh, what we saw, if you can remember, everybody was locked in their homes. They weren't in their workplaces. And things like the services sector, like hospitality and retail, essentially shut. And so people were doing a lot of spending online. So the price of goods and goods inflation really shot up which reversed a trend from the last few decades. So goods inflation shot up more than people were expecting and services inflation fell more than people were expecting. Right. And I guess because, because we've had, as you say, a trend of over decades, perhaps central banks weren't as across the goods inflation in the way they'd had to be in the past. Yeah, yeah, because remember, with their mental models, they're working with the last 30 years of things. So in the inflation targeting era, which began in the 1990s, we have these long-term trends of what has been happening. And so when we were, we were smashed by this, this COVID shock, they were kind of essentially looking in the rearview mirror for how inflation had worked up to this point. Uh, but because of all the chaos that ensued with the, with the shutdowns, the stimulus and everything, a lot of those trends were broken and started going in other directions. Right. Uh, what about the labour market, Gareth? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. The IMF research has found that this unprecedented labour market tightness, 
which we've had now, they by unprecedented, they mean since the 70s, when we said goodbye to genuine full employment. So in the in this inflation targeting era, countries like Australia, the UK, the US, Canada, they started to see their unemployment rates drop dramatically. And the IMF researchers said because of this, this significantly correlates with their core inflation forecast errors, because again, central banks just haven't had to deal with such tight labour markets. So essentially they were off they were off the map, if you if I could put it that way. They had this kind of map of how the economy worked and how the economy connected to other countries' economies. But because of what happened in the pandemic, they were in uncharted areas. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. RBI Governor Philip Lowe has said as much. I mean, when he was in Canberra recently, fronting up against those parliamentary committees, he was saying, look, the models that the RBA uses, they do not work well with supply shocks. Because inflation targeting is all about managing demand through output and labour. You create the slack in the labour market or whatever to control demand. Now, when you have all of these different variables hitting and washing the place around and it's a supply shock that starts it and then you've got all the different imbalances that flow from that, they they were essentially flying blind in a lot of areas. Mm. So in summary, where did these IMF researchers land on this? Well, the IMF researchers say this partial assessment, it's still going to take a number of years to really bed down what actually happened. But at the moment, they say for inflation forecasts uh, into the future, we're going to have to do a better job of integrating the impact of fiscal policy, particularly in an environment where supply constraints really amplify the impact of the excess demand on inflation. So that's one. Um, But they also say we're going to also have to really wrap our heads around the impacts that tight labour markets can have as well. Because if we're going to keep labour markets as tight as they are, it's going to have an impact on inflation going forward. So that's another thing. Were there any factors that they don't consider? As you say, this is a partial assessment. It's, it's the earliest one that I've heard about. So are there things they don't talk about as being a factor? They're, they're using orthodox frameworks here. It's, it's very high level. So they don't say anything about market power They don't say anything about falling real wages and record profits or the distributional conflict between businesses and workers. So these things are real phenomena. Economists are arguing about them, but the IMF hasn't touched it with this analysis. So these are questions that will have to be settled in the future. Yeah, presumably they are aware of of the fact that economists are arguing about this. They've just decided not to go there. Is there, Gareth, any hint of uh, humility or acknowledgement that maybe central banks alone, which are mostly focused on targeting inflation and have essentially one weapon to do that, don't have all the tools necessary to sort of see it coming? Yeah, it's, it's what makes this magazine really interesting because you have these are the elite of the elite talking to themselves about how well the framework is working, whether it needs to be changed. Um, and part of the discussion is saying, well, maybe we need to get monetary policy and fiscal policy working well again. They say maybe we should break the rules and get them to work together again, which is not something that has happened in the last 30, 40 years. So that means there could be a bigger role of government because fiscal policy is government taxing, government spending decisions, all that type of thing. So if you can get them talking better with central banks to try to manage the economy together, it might be where we're headed. That's interesting because in, in, in the last 
year especially, I've asked a few people about this, whether there was more of a role for fiscal policy. And mostly they've kind of tried to walk away from answering that question because it's sort of been this article of faith for, as you say, more than 30 years that central banks do this and governments do that. And it suited governments to be able to say, well, central banks handle inflation. But interestingly, more people are starting to think that way. And I think Ross Garneau in his book of a year or two ago now, he suggested perhaps we need to get these things together. Yeah, yeah. And that book, interesting you raised that because it was quite prophetic in some ways because he was saying, well, I think the unemployment rate at the time was a bit over 6%. He was saying the RBA could really drive down unemployment rate to 3.5%, see what happens to inflation then and just see how we go. And, you know, 18 months later, it got down to 3.5% and it didn't have the surge in wages or inflation coming from the labour market that those old models had predicted. Yeah. Gareth, thank you very much for bringing this to our attention. Thanks for having me. Gareth Hutchins is a business and economics reporter here at the ABC. And that's it for now. Next time on the show, AI. There's been a lot of talk about it lately. What will its economic impact be? The Money is produced by Kate McDonald. I'm Richard Aidey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.